You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. You could say perhaps like a typical hymn, a typical nursery rhyme, a typical 60s song, a typical sort of like goth song you know whatever a, t- a typical a typical northern soul beat but no music's typical and so it was just always going to be considered tongue-in-cheek um the album's not typical it's very untypical but there was something that I kept coming back to and that was that during covid you know and the listening parties I was thinking typically music can save the day it can help and it can really heal This is Tim Burgess, and today we're going to be talking about Typical Music, my album that came out in September on Bella Union. Here comes the weekend and there's so much to do. Here comes the weekend, can I spend it with you? When you're in New York, maybe I'll call. Another weekend together apart. Tim Burgess is the frontman of much-loved 90s band The Charlatans. He would be the first to admit he's lived the rock and roll life to its fullest. He wrote a memoir called Telling Stories that chronicled it. Of course, when the book came out in 2012, it was the drug escapades that made the biggest headlines. But it's the quiet way he writes about the sudden death of his bandmate Rob Collins and the unspoken toll that it took on him that sets this rock and roll biography apart. Aside from his 30-year career with the Charlatans, Tim is a polymath with three books to his name, a record label that he runs, and for 15 years, he's also been releasing his own solo records. His most recent album, Typical Music, was written during the pandemic, It was during this time that he also had a brilliant idea to host his own listening parties over Twitter. Each party involved everyone on Twitter listening to a classic album by pressing play at the same time. Then someone involved in making that album would live tweet behind the scenes stories or share unseen photos from that time. This sense of communing together over music with bands and their fans during a time of so much fear and uncertainty helps set the optimistic tone for typical music. Before we get into that, we go back to Tim's childhood, growing up in Northwich, a town 20 miles outside of Manchester. In his book, he writes that unlike most celebrity memoirs, his happy childhood was a blur of Christmases, birthdays, chocolates and relatives. So I understand you grew up in Salford. Yeah, I was born in Salford, which is pretty much central Manchester. My dad worked at a place called AEI in Salford. It's like a chemical factory and then got a job in ICI, which is another chemical factory um, in Northwich. So the family moved there. Paradise to me was Manchester Mm. because I guess I felt like, you know, I mean, I was always going there anyway because my, my grandparents lived there. 
So I, I would go there every weekend. But as I became a teenager, you know, that Manchester as as a place to go out or to go and buy clothes or to go and buy records, that was like kind of a version of paradise. Did you have any siblings to get up to mischief with? My sister, Claire, she's two years younger than me. Um, I was always with friends. They always had older brothers, you know, so I was like, I was hanging out with, uh, you know, friends my age. And when I think of a teenager, I always think of myself at age 13, because that's when I first started taking the train to Manchester with my friends and, and their older brothers. So what would a perfect day have been like for you? Well, um, skateboarding, for sure. Uh, or playing football and listening to records, really. Age 13 for me was 1981. It was a really healthy time for music, like right in the middle of post-punk. And anyone who was like very young began to fall in love with like second generation punk. Uh-huh. Bands like Discharge and Crass, Exploited. And uh, I was fortunate enough to go to like a punk festival in Blackpool with my friends and their older brothers and uh, the old eldest brothers being 18 and but th- it was all ages these festivals were all ages you know when I was young and I tell people that now and and they think 13 that's crazy it's so young but you know I was always with like older lads there would certainly be like I guess ribbing for being so young mm. from the older guys but generally very protective and also like you know meeting people in these places they w- wanted to kind of helped me out and sort of like they were they were like excited that someone so young would be so into sort of music and then we became known you know like the Northwich punks you know which <laughs> d- doesn't sound doesn't sound quite uh as tough as as I used to think it was but um <laughs> but you know but we we were, we were known and we would make people laugh and it was all about the music well what would it mean when somebody said oh here come the Norwich punks what would <laughs> yeah, it mean well, you know, you'd get into the centre of Manchester and we'd be in a van, you know, that, uh, mm. that someone's dad had hired. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we'd just all be there, with, you know, with the heads out of the windows and sort of like shouting at people who were queuing up outside the venue and stuff like that. And they'd be like, like ah. just excitement, isn't it? You know, just a genuine excitement. Did you always get into any trouble in those days? Or was it very good, clean fun? No, no, of course there was rivalry and, and fights, of course. That goes with the territory though, right? It's kind of tribal. Wow. Not not me. Not me. I, I didn't fight anybody. <laughs> I just kind of like, just stood my ground, watched everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Would you come home and tell your parents what went down? Uh, no, I think they knew what was going on. Especially when he, came, you know, came on with a black eye. <laughs> but then, of course, you know, the, everyone used to dance like that. So, so it's quite a good excuse. I was just dancing. I was dancing more. Yeah. <laughs> It certainly wasn't a typical day. I mean, going to shows or festivals and things like that, they were not every week because it just couldn't have been, you know, didn't have any kind of money either. If it's ever so often, there must be quite a lot of excitement to go to a festival. And Yeah, of course. In Manchester, there used to be this place called the Underground Market. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, the place where you buy punk clothes from, really. Um, so you, I remember getting a pair of... Uh, blue bondage trousers from there. And then my mum made me some bondage trousers as well, which was kind of like really cool. Yeah. Zips and buckles and and straightening my cricket trousers and my school <laughs> cricket trousers that I didn't really want to wear. <laughs> she always had the sewing machine out. You know, she'd just keep checking, checking that they were tight enough. She was very supportive in my quest to be a vegetarian, to be a punk, uh, you know, she's cool. 
So, what is a memory from your childhood that, when you look back on, really brings you joy?、Um, my friend Simon Owen lived like seven doors away from me when I was growing up in in this kind of small village near Northwich. We had an old brother, older sister, and and he was a twin. So there's always a lot going on there. But me and him would always go to his room and listen to records. We'd take turns and who would be buying the record. And、uh, I remember him bringing home a bullshit detector, which was on Crass Records, and it's like a compilation album. And I remember just you know tuning into this compilation of about twenty bands. All putting out one track. He also had a record、uh, called "Let the Tribe Increase" by a band called The Mob, and I didn't have that one either. But but I had、um, "Penis Envy" by Crass, and I had some singles that that we would kind of not trade, but you know I'd have them for a couple of days and then give them back. And it was just brilliant, really. And in some ways, I got back to that state with the listening parties,、mm. with the kind of the experience of listening. To an album in full and just taking it all in, with kind of like no interruptions. As life goes on, those moments are few and far between.、Mm. So that's a moment of pure bliss for me. The flip side of that: what is a memory from your childhood that makes you sad? God,、uh, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's like particularly sad, but there's one thing that sticks in mind that is that very significant. We're supposed to go on a camping trip. With some friends, and it was like only to the next town. At the very last minute, I decided that I couldn't go, and so there was eight of us going, and nobody came back. They all got arrested. Oh my god! And、uh, ended up going to juvenile court because there was like a really bad incident that involved a knife and someone getting hurt. I felt really sad because、um, I just couldn't really comprehend it, but at the same time, I felt kind of very lucky. That I didn't get caught up in any of that. We've talked about music a little bit already, but was is there a song where where you realise, wow, you know, it, music is transcendent; it can really take you somewhere. I suppose the jam, really. So friends、mm. of mine and their older brothers always had albums. You know, we could only really get the seven inches, and I remember,、um, you know. Clash and Cockney Rejects and bands, bands like that, and Sham Sixty Nine, sort of like、uh, sort of bands that were on top of the pops and bands that were on the TV. But all the brothers had like Clash and Devo,、uh, uh, and there's one album, All Mod Cons by the Jam, that just sort of like had had incredible songwriting on it. What was it about it? Well, it was the lyrics. He could read like magazines, and there'd be journalists who would sort of like say, "Oh, these lyrics are amazing," but. Actually, reading the lyrics on on a record sleeve、mm. while you're listening to a song, while you're round at your best mate's house and his mum and dad are out, and it's his older brother's record, and they're at school or or at work. There's just so much to take in. And I guess Paul Weller was probably about I don't know ten years older than me, and he was just like writing about adult themes or, or older teenage things, and it just felt amazing. And there was a point when your mum had more music industry connections than you, right? Can、That's、you、true. tell us a bit about that? <laughs> yeah, well, my mum、uh, was、um, she worked in the local village、uh, newsagent, and she would save me like the enemy because there was only like one copy that would come in. <laughs> <laughs> so she saved me a copy of the enemy and a copy of Smash Hits and stuff like that, and bring it home every Wednesday or every other Wednesday. So this this guy called Alan Erasmus.、Um, Uh, used to come into the shop, and and、uh, she didn't know who he was, but he was always this chatty guy, and you know, he's like had a beard and would come on his bike and always buy a newspaper.、Mm-hmm. 
And one day he pulled out some change and, and he had a badge and my mum would tell him that I was into music and really into music. He said, I'll give you some this. And it was a, a badge that said FAC 51, uh, which is the um, badge for the Hacienda. The Hacienda was a big place to be in the 80s, and it grew to legendary status in the 90s with the rise of acid house and dance music. The club was co-owned by the band New Order and their label Factory Records, which was run by TV host Tony Wilson and actor Alan Erasmus. This would have been about 1982, I think. So when she came home, she said, I've been talking to this bloke called Alan. And uh, here's, a, here's a badge, you know, I was like, what? You know, do you know how rare these are? It was like, it was like um, you know, uh, when my son gets a Pokemon card or something like that. It's like, uh, you know, it's just like the the, 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 the the most amazing thing. And so she was like the hippest, hippest person in my life for a while. <laughs> and anyway, their friendship grew and he uh, brought records and he would come into the shop with Tony Wilson at times as well. And, wow. and, uh, and uh, because they, cause Alan was a director at the Hacienda and, and, a, and a director of Factory Records. So with Tony Wilson being on the TV, because he, he was on Granada Reports every night as a news broadcaster and Alan Erasmus coming into the shop, they, they really kind of like took me to a new level in of listening material. So he brought me to erotic column records and a certain ratio records and obviously new order records. Um, mm. And uh, I remember getting a, a white label of, of confusion and a white label of low life with it assigned by the band and all that kind of stuff. Wow. And so, 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 like when you're 15, 16, it was really helpful in thinking that music could be more than just a dream, you know. While working at the local ICI paint factory and playing in a band called the Electric Canyon Set, Tim was invited by Rob Collins, the keyboardist and main songwriter of the Charlatans, to join the band and replace their original singer. This lineup of Tim, Rob Collins, John Brooks, Martin Blunt, and John Baker would go on to fulfill their ambitions of being a successful rock band. And it didn't take you guys long before you're like on the radio and on the telly, right? Yeah, it's weird. There's lots of, there's lots of, thoughts around that time mm. i mean martin and john have been in bands before and charlatans had been going for a little while you know martin had been in a band and then they split up and then he had to get a, a job and then mm-hmm. and then he started this band up uh, as his kind of like his final dream hope you know yeah. i felt i've like been doing it for ages even though i've been doing it for like not that long uh but i'd always been in bands since i was like 13 you know pretty much i never thought it would be something that i could do for real, but I'd always been in bands. When we got together, it just felt so right and we just worked really fast because also it was an amazing time for music, like late 80s Mm. and all through the 90s. It just felt like it was our time. I felt old Mm. and I was 23 years old Mm. because, you know, pop music, you know, it's very youthful. So I thought, this this is my last chance. I've got got to work fast, you know, and and, and it worked. (laughs) Everything we did worked. The only one I know, the lead single of their debut, Some Friendly, was released on indie label Beggar's Banquet and hit the UK Top 10. A smash hit in the summer of 1990, it rode the crest of Acid House and the beginnings of the rave scene, taking their debut album to number one on the British pop charts.
the success of the first album meant they got to work with Flood, one of the most sought-after producers for their second album. Called Between 10th and 11th, it was named after the New York address of their first American gig, and it gave the band their first US hit single, Weirdo. By the time it came to recording their third, Up to Our Hips, cracks started to appear. This would eventually lead to a fatal accident. It occurred close to where the band were recording their fifth album, Telling Stories. While you're working on your third album, Rob Collins, your keyboardist and good friend, he has that misstep with the arm robbery, which I still can't Mm -hmm. like understand. Mm. You know, it's this like incredible bad luck. So a couple of years after that, and then he tragically dies in the car accident in the midst of you guys recording. And you said in the book, like you were ready to walk away from the charlatans at that stage. And I, I mean, I can't even understand just like the shock of it it's one thing for someone to pass away and it's a completely other thing for it to happen so suddenly the way it did Mm -hmm. you said in the book that you don't have nightmares about it anymore and I wondered how long did it take you before you stopped having these nightmares and and ultimately did it have anything to do with sort of like the guilt that you felt because the last words that you'd said to him was like, you know, you were angry and you'd had an argument and was that all tied up with everything you were feeling? Yeah, I mean, 10 years it took, I think, pretty much to, not to the day, but, you know, to to the month for sure. And, um, you know, I could have had 10 years of drinking, really, post Rob's death. Um, Guilt, yeah, I felt guilty. Um. I think we all did, really. Uh, um, it's uh, I mean, there's a lot you asked a lot there, uh, so it's hard to. I'm trying to process it. Um, so yeah, he went to jail after a an an armed robbery that. Um, that seemed like so out of kind of like context with, you know, we just got back from Japan. So it just seemed like so strange, you know, we just had a really successful tour and he went out with his mate and uh, his mate went into a, a shop with a, with a, uh, a replica gun. Um, came out, Rob picked him up, drove him somewhere. They went around to see, some friends. Then when Rob drove his car back to his house, there was armed police on the roof of his garage. It just seems such a mess and so crazy, you know? Um, and that's kind of the, the story that I know. Um, you know, he had a baby and a wife and they were in the house while he was getting arrested. It was just mm. mad, you know? And then um, we we made up to our hips and we made it really fast again because we thought that he was going to go away for a long time. Mm. When he came out of prison, he was very different. Mm. Um, but the first thing we did was record the charlatans. So we recorded that. We felt like we were back. You know, we felt like we were really on top of the world again. And the album went to number one and we successfully toured that all around the world and had a great time and then we went in to do telling stories and Rob started deteriorating in a lot of ways, um, uh, uh, more drinking, mm. 
more going out, more kind of like a disregard for the music in a, in a, in a lot of ways. And, you know, that was shocking because he was so, so, um, always so, um, uh, you know, dedicated. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, he started hanging out with lots of people in the, the studio would always be packed and it'd be packed full of people who were taking stuff and, mm. you know, there's lots of drugs going on all the time. And, 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 uh, and, and, and it took, you know, we did our first album in, um, I think three weeks, did our second one in six, mm. uh, up to our hips with everything that was going on took three months. Tell the story, nine months, <laughs> you know, it was just, it's just like we were there every day. It was just like nothing was getting done. Uh, and some of it was fun, you know, undoubtedly. Lots of it was fun. Yeah. Uh, and some of it just wasn't. Um, and then when, you know, Rob's accident happened, it was just like, I, it, no one could believe it because um, the police turned up and said, uh, how old was he? And it was just that, you know, um, the past tense was just like, something that we were both talking, me and Mark, because we were the only ones there. We were just like on our way to the hospital. We just get, and we were trying to take our mind off this, off, off the drive to the hospital. It took us about like an hour to get there. Um, and, uh, just thinking, you know, how old was he? How old was he? Do you think that's what they meant? You, you know, it's like, mm. and, uh, so we turned the radio on and one to another was playing, you know, and it was like, cause it was just about to come out. And it's like, and I kept listening to the lyrics and I was just thinking, he's dead, he's dead. I just, it's like these lyrics are like, mm. they're just like a, almost like a prophecy. I, I don't, that's like the weirdest, I don't even know exactly what that means, but it just felt like it was just um, something. And we got there, I stayed in the car because Mark just ran straight in, got out of the car, ran straight in. And he came walking back and he said, he's dead. God. And um, I don't know why, or how long it took us to then just get back in the car and drive back to the studio. I'm sure we sent some texts or made some phone calls. It, uh, I remember it being dark. I don't know whether it was because it was probably, I don't know. I don't know when, it, I can't think right now. I'm just letting my, I'm just talking. Mm. I can't even think. Um, um, and um, we drove back to the studio and it's, and it started pouring down oh. and um and then we just listened to the Beatles and then after that everybody came down there's like newspapers there the following morning outside the studio was just like taking photographs all, all kinds of crazy stuff um and um yeah I guess that's probably more than you needed to know but um I don't know. It's, 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 it's very stressful. Tim has often said that might have been a fitting end for the charlatans. But performing at Nebworth changed things. And today, after 13 top 40 UK albums, the charlatans are still a popular touring band. Though that kind of grief never really goes away. No, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's never, it never goes away really, but it's just how you, um, I mean, I think sometimes 
you know, writing is very, is very good for, for that. Mm. Um, and, th- and therapy, mm. you know, but, uh, you know, I, I just drank a lot after that, I drank very heavily. And th- after Rob's death, uh, Martin Duffy from Primal Screen mm. was selected by Jeff Barrett and Bobby Gillespie uh, and himself, I think, uh, you know, to to put himself forward and play at this ridiculous show called Nedworth yeah. that was 110,000 people, all Oasis fans, you know, just huge. And we played it. We were amazing. We were, we were brilliant. Um, lots of it was because people were like, probably not expecting too much because we didn't have our principal songwriter driving force and exceptional backing vocalist with us. But we did something that was different and very real. And people were in tears. They were crying because of joy. Mm-hmm. You know, they it was a lot sense of loss, sense of joy, hopefully coming to some, some acceptance. We were given that platform to be able to show that we could still continue, mm-hmm. which is a really amazing thing. And, and I think we could have quite easily backed out of doing that show. Mm-hmm. And I think if we had, I think it would have been a different story, really. In 1998, the Charlatans started to record their sixth record in Los Angeles called Wonderland. Tim had moved there a year earlier and stayed on after the album was released in 2001. Two years later, he emerged with his first solo record, I Believe. Different from any Charlatans album, I Believe showcased his love for troubadours like Bob Dylan and Graham Parsons from the Flying Burrito Brothers. Now realize that everybody's always taking I'm traveling down this chosen road that I ain't never been before I'll walk alone and catch later, I'll be back to even up the score listened to the album and I loved it but then I was reading The Guardian and it gave you a really scathing review but had you thought about going solo before and what was the impetus back then to like do a solo album? Well I didn't know about the um, the scathing review or uh, at the time it certainly didn't seem to matter (laughs) Um, I was really having a great time I had thought about going solo before but they were just seeds of, of a thought. Mm. However, after Wonderland and doing it in Los Angeles and, and I was living in Los Angeles, I just felt like I wanted to stay at home for a bit and enjoy this beautiful sunshine <laughs> and enjoy 
enjoy enjoy the vibe. You know, I, I loved living there. So I stayed, you know, and uh, and I started recording a few songs and, and it didn't take me too long, maybe six months in total to, to write and record and, and mix. And, um, and it just felt like the right time to do it. And then, of course, like, you know, pretty much as soon as it came out, I was starting writing on the next Charlatan's mm. album. So there was no, there's no time to sort of like, you know, take a breath really. And when it came out, I think in general, I think people really loved it. It it did take you like almost a decade before your second solo yeah. album. And then also that was actually on your own label. Well, the label had been going for quite a, quite a while before I put my own record out. Um, and, um, and, I, and and it was funny, uh, you know, I'd, I'd had quite a few releases and I put out records by Stevie Moore and The Vaccines and, and uh, Electricity in Our Homes, all bands that I really mm. liked. I enjoyed the idea of being a label, watching bands do their thing. That was inspiring to me, you know, it's like rather than me sort of like always asking labels what they could do for me or whatever, it was people asking what I could do for them. And it was really interesting. And I thought, right, I'm going to record my LP and I'm going to do it with Kurt Wagner. We've promised each other that we were going to work with each other for 10 years. And so I went to Nashville, recorded something with him. And it's the first time I'd ever given the lyric side of things away uh, to somebody else. And, you know, I'd come up with some ideas Mm. and then he'd fill in the blanks, basically. And then when he got round to like, who am I going to put it out with? I thought, I've got my own label. What am I talking about? If I, I mean, I can't, I can't tell everybody in the world to come to my label and put records <laughs> out if I'm not going to put one out myself. So, so that, that's how it came about. And then, and then I put three records out <laughs> on my own label. One of the perks of having his own label meant that when he recorded some songs with friends in a kind of supergroup and then forgot about it till almost 10 years later, he could now simply give that album a title and then release it. The sessions that became the album As I Was Now took place between Christmas and New Year of 2008. Tim did some jamming and recording with a dream band, which included members of My Bloody Valentine, The Horrors, Primal Scream, and Lady Hawk. Unlike the more cohesive pop rock sound of the charlatans, his solo work seemed to be a space for him to collaborate with musicians he admired and experiment with different genres. On this album, there's the Shirelles-tinged dream pop of Just One Kiss, Last Kiss, a duet with Lady Hawk. What would I get for just one kiss? I don't know, but I thought it should be like this. What would I get for just one touch? I know what I saw in your eyes, it sparkled so much. I don't want to set anybody free. Childish excuses or apologies Right from the start I gave you my heart I did, yes I did I always wanted to be in love And on the other end of the spectrum, there's Nick V, a driving, motorrick track that would not be out of place on the dance floor at the Hacienda. Tim's love for experimentation continued, and in 2020, Tim released his fifth solo record, I Love the New Sky. 
It's at once esoteric and oddly inviting. Consider a song like The Mall, a comment on consumer culture. It's spacey and weird, but also infectious. You like the mall. It's somewhere to pass the time. It's about, you know, some people getting together in a shopping mall. It's fantasy and it's kind of like perfection. So it's like utopia and dystopia at the same time. And there's experimentation and there's also room for human error too, because, you know, there's, there's lots of things that we just don't do again, you know, and I love that because, you know, even if there's like something that's considered a mistake, by the time that you've layered other things on top, that mistake can actually have an amazing effect. And if you would have erased that mistake, nothing would be there. So it'd just be bland music, you know what I mean? And I love the idea of things just not being bland. When Tim's tour supporting I Love the New Sky was cancelled because of COVID, and he was getting no joy trying to write any new songs, he did a Twitter listening party to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the release of Some Friendly, the Charlatan's debut album. As more and more tours got cancelled, he wanted to find a way to keep listening to music with fans. In the first week, he invited friends to discuss their iconic albums. Dave Roundtree of Blur did Park Life, and Paul Bonehead Arthurs from Oasis did Definitely Maybe. Pretty soon, there was a listening party almost every day. It was deliberately held at 10pm London time to offer people an alternative to the disheartening evening news. This positivity from the listening parties inspired the optimism of the new album. Typical day, ain't a piece of cake Without a friend, I'll go today that got me was like I sit and watch the flowers grow outside the factory dreaming of a TV show and I was like what's that TV show (laughs) well you know now you're asking but uh, maybe I'll reveal it one day so you you won't reveal what TV show it was (laughs) okay so what does typical music actually mean because I know that um, titles are very important to you yeah I think typical music, I mean, you know, I mean, no music's typical. Mm. Not really. I mean, you know, 
you could say perhaps like a, a typical hymn, a typical nursery rhyme, mm. typical a typical 60s song, a typical sort of like goth song, you know, mm. whatever. A, t- a typical a typical Northern Soul beat. But no music's typical. And and so it was just, oh, it's always going to be considered tongue-in-cheek. The album's not typical. It's very untypical. Mm. But there was something that I kept coming back to, and that was that during COVID, you know, and the listening parties, I was thinking typically music can save the day, you know, and uh, it can help and it can really heal and, and get people through things. So typically music saves the day. comes the weekend starting the album is like a sentiment that we can all understand the sense of oh my god i just want to relax or let my hair down or party and then there's something that i really loved about it was there's something lou read about the way you kind of sing say Mm -hmm. it you know once that was in my head i was like it's like the song a perfect day it's like just a list of things that are just happening you know then when you just sort of say i could make you happy you could make me sad that kind of just like broke my heart because i was like oh no you know is this like Something ending, suddenly the stakes just went yeah. up. All of all of that, I think, all of that. You said in an interview with The Guardian that you wanted to build a world that was sealed and protective and multicolored. Yeah. But at the same time, the song has a lot of like, the undertow is like sadness to, to it for me, which is kind of befitting of the times as well. But when did you write that song? I wrote that kind of like a kind of um, as COVID was starting to happen, really. Um, a friend of mine had gone to uh, work in um, uh, in Hungary um, mm. and I was really missing her and I didn't know why so much. Mm. And um, so I kind of like wrote a lot of it about that, really. Not being able to go out and have a good time was um, was part of the mood of that song. Missing someone and not being able to go and have a good time. I think it kind of, and I think they're together apart, but, you know, it's kind of almost like, um, in some ways, that was kind of like almost too corny for me, you know, to have that as the big refrain. But the more I sang it and the more we harmonised with it, I just thought it sounded like something from Loaded, you know, about Velvet Underground. Mm. And that just just blew my mind it's like you know it wasn't intentional then it sounded like that i was listening to a lot of jonathan richmond if that's any help <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, you know yes. sort of like um uh, parties in the usa and stuff like that party gets mentioned a couple of times <laughs> yes party yeah 
so yeah, Jonathan Richmond, Lou Reed. I mean, COVID, missing someone. It's, it's that that's the story of that song. This is like a double album. How did you like write that much? There's there's like Twitter parties almost every other mm-hmm. night. It mm-hmm. seemed, mm-hmm. you know, every day, yeah, yeah. And you were writing this mm-hmm. album and. Were you also writing a book at that stage? No. no. Um, just, no. just the listen parties um, and, and the album. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work already. And then you're, you've got a son. Like, how were you able to do all these things? Uh, you know, I, I meditate in the morning, meditate at uh, six o'clock in the evening, roughly, mm. for, certainly for 20 minutes each time. Mm. And that's kind of like something that I just build into my day. Listening party would be after my second meditation and writing the album would be after my first one and walks and sometimes hanging out with my son. And But I mean, it, the album didn't come easy at first. Um, I was I was set mm. a challenge by Simon Raymond from uh, Bella Union to, to write another album mm. uh, until COVID had, had stopped and we were allowed to go on tour again. And, um, mm. and from pretty much from April till September, I tried to write every day and just couldn't really think of anything until I got a song, Time, that we call Time, um, which was kind of like pretty significant of what was going on around me in my Mm. world. And then after that, the tap just opened and I was just writing. Is it time that we call time? Is it time that we call time? I can see you through my closed eyes, you're all around me. They seem to want to drown me. I found out you had doubts. I know that if I could be there for you, I would. Yes, it's poetry. Revenge is also sweet once tales have been spun. I live by the sea, and I appreciate the summer more than I've ever done. I guess life was. If you've seen any recent photo of Tim Burgess, you would know that he has this Andy Warhol-like mop of blonde hair. Tim had told me that he dyes his hair that sunny color because he wants his hair to reflect how he feels inside. Bold and bright, he said. It seems to me that he is that eternal optimist who will change his exterior to conjure up what he wants to feel inside. Like all of us, the pandemic was a tough time for Tim. Some of the songs hint at the aftermath of a failed relationship, others the longing for a new relationship complicated by COVID and other concerns. But Tim pushes through in a way he knows how. With good cheer, his boundless energy and sunny choruses. He helped many of us rediscover the joy of listening to our favorite albums and gave us something to look forward to during the darker days of COVID lockdowns. Similarly, typical music is filled with this big-hearted gestures of joy. One of the songs that I really enjoyed and like when I was listening to it earlier today was um, Center of Me is a Symphony of You. 
resisting in a dream While existing on your screen I felt I was always waiting for you And you were nowhere to be seen truly jubilant song and I've always just heard it like that like it's such a euphoric kind of song but but today when I listened to it this morning you know that part just before it comes to it's true it's true that it's kind of last third of the song before yeah. you listen to the refrain yeah. it actually yeah. brought me close to tears wow there was just something in there in the song thank you so much I love that song so much. I'm playing it tonight. I'm nervous because I'm playing acoustic guitar on it and that little riff at the beginning. It's so kind of like childlike in a way. And, but it's it's, uh, it's really saying, you know, that whole song, it comes from here and it's like, you know, it's a big message to the universe. listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Tim Burgess. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfin. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Additional music from Lily Sloan. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis-Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www under the radarmag.com or get a copy of our latest print issue. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time, thank you for listening.